0: Open it at this time to the book of Joshua, chapter 10. So, Joshua, chapter 10, for our Bible study tonight. And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand. And the ushers, they're walking up and down the aisles right now. Um, They are uh, Navy SEALs, they're quick, they're stealthy. The Delta Force. What is going on with the cold weather? (laughs) It was freezing today, wasn't it? (laughs) Joshua chapter 10. Have you ever had a really long day? (laughs) You're laughing because you read ahead, right? I'm talking about A really long day where things just seem to go bad on every front and from every direction from the moment that you open your eyes in the morning. I mean, supernaturally bad. Where it's physical, it's mental, it's spiritual, it's emotional, it's just... It seems like all of the world is aiming at you and is, is mad at you for some reason, and it's just, you, you can't explain it. It's just really, really bad. Everything's falling apart. For some of you, you'd say, it's more than just a long day, it's been a long week, or it's been a long month, or maybe a long year, or maybe a long life. It's exactly what we find in our text tonight that is facing the people of God. They're about to be faced with some major problems. What we're going to see is how those problems are actually prescribed by God and turn out to their progress. And it's a principle that God employs in the lives of his people using problems in order to bring them to progress in the will that he has for their lives. And so we see it in our text, we see how it happens, we see when it happens, and then we get to apply it to our lives that we might also see it happen for us as well. So if you look with me, chapter 10, verse 1. It says, now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, it's the first mention of Jerusalem in the Bible. It says, how he heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king. And how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. "...that they feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty." Now, we meet up with Joshua and the armies of Israel now, in the middle of their conquest of the Promised Land. The book of Joshua really divides into three segments or sections. The first is the entering into the promised land. That's in chapters 1 through 5. And then the second section, chapters 6 through 12, is the conquest of the land. That is, when they defeat and dethrone all of the kings of the Canaanites and successfully take over their land as God had commanded them to do, as God had promised to Abraham. And then the third segment is chapters 13 through the end of the book, and that is simply the division of the land, how it is allotted to the 12 tribes and given to them as an inheritance for them uh, you know, to, to have their promised land. Now, where we find ourselves is in the middle of the conquest portion of this. Really, it's kind of towards the beginning, but don't blink because it goes really quick. The strategy that they're using is one of divide and conquer. They're going into the land just about at the dead center point. I mean, the land is somewhat rectangular from north to south, and they go in, in the very center, and they're going to split the land in half. They start at Jericho, and then they move in a little bit further to Ai, and now they're going to cut straight across the middle... And chapter 10 is an account of how they take the southern portion of the land, everything from that middle line and downward. Then chapter 11 is everything from that middle line upward. And so the conquest happens very quickly, at least in terms of chapters and verses that are allotted to explaining it to us. We find that the time lapse is about seven years that it takes to go through the whole thing, but only two chapters given to that time. Now we've seen Jericho fall, as we saw in the first two verses here. And then we saw what happened with Ai, how there was a minor setback, but it turned into a major victory as Israel went through and then took over and and, and accomplished the task of defeating Ai. And then last week we met the Gibeonites. A group of defectors. A a segment of the population there in Canaan who realized that they were condemned and that they had to do something to spare their lives if they wanted to spare their lives because they knew that their days were numbered and that their, their, uh, their time had come, really. And so they deceive Joshua and they make a peace treaty with him. And God honors it, even though they did it the wrong way, and although they were crafty, God honored what they did, and he accepted their plea for peace, because we see that it was mixed with faith. That they believed in who he was, and they knew that it was their only hope, and so they come to Joshua, they plead for mercy, basically, and they obtain it, they receive it, and they become servants to Israel, because of the covenant that was made, uh, there in that time. Now, though they made peace with Joshua and their lives were spared, that decision, that move, doesn't come without consequences. Because what we see is that now the king of Jerusalem and some of the other kings of the land with them are upset by this. They see that Gibeon has defected, and they're angry at Gibeon because of this. And it tells us there that Adonai Zedek feared because of the defection of the Gibeonites. Now, why did he fear? He feared for two reasons. Number one, because it meant that his forces, or the stand that the Canaanites would make, would be weakened. We're told that the Gibeonites were one of the royal cities that the men were mighty, the men of Gibeon were mighty, and so therefore, the king of Jerusalem realized that, hey, we don't have these guys fighting on our team anymore, and that makes us just a little bit weaker in our stand against the Israelites. Number two, the second reason that he feared, was because he was afraid that perhaps other Canaanite peoples, cities, towns, kingdoms, would also defect to Joshua and would essentially end up fighting against him. So he feared for his life because of the covenant that was made, and, uh, you know, and and he's afraid that others will follow suit. Now, that is a great picture, what happens with Adonai Bezek and with the Gibeonites, of what happens with the people that give their lives and make a decision to defect from the kingdom of darkness... And to make a decision for the kingdom of God and turn their life over to the Lord. When a person gives their life to the Lord, when they say, I no longer want to walk in the paths of death, but I want to give myself to the king of life. There's a consequence for it. And that is that Satan, your former boss, the one who used to hold the reins of your life, isn't happy. And just like Adonai Zedek fears because of the defection of the Gibeonites, so Satan also realizes that his kingdom is weakened when someone turns their life over to Jesus Christ. Why? Why is that? Well, first of all, the the strength of Satan's kingdom is that of Numbers. That's what he has going on his side. Now, if you've been following with us in Joshua, then you've heard me say, not once or twice... That the strength of Satan's kingdom is the lies that he tells. He is the father of lies. And the strength of his kingdom is founded upon lies. And the lies of Satan are so ridiculous that the only way that he can continue to thrive and maintain a stronghold upon this world and upon people's lives is because of the amount of people that actually believe his lies. But his lies are really ridiculous. I mean, think with me and just pretend for just a minute that Satan had absolutely zero followers. That everyone on the whole planet believed in God. And believed in the Bible and believed in Christ and had a relationship with Him. And then someone came on the scene, came to you, living in that atmosphere where everyone believes in God, and they tried to tell you one of the lies that Satan holds so strongly. And they came to you and they said, you believe that God actually created the world? That there's actually a creator and a designer behind all of the things that that we see and enjoy here on this planet? I don't believe that. And you would look at them and you'd say, everybody believes in God. God in a God that made these things. I mean, it's, it's obvious, it's plain. I mean, you, you look at the things that you see. I mean, watch an inchworm move along upon a tree log. Watch the sun as it goes through its circuit in the sky and the changing of the seasons. Think about the intricacy of the order of creation, the way our bodies work, and the way everything in the systems work. And I mean, nothing in this world maintains or creates order. I mean, we would say that's ridiculous. Well, you don't believe that there's a God that made this? What do you believe? And they would say, well, I I just believe that millions and billions of years ago there was a big bang! And all of a sudden one thing happens, another thing happens and here we are! I just believe that. I really think that, that, that there was just a primordial ooze, and that just became something a little bit more organized, and now there's men. I I just really think that that's the way that it happened. We would say that's ridiculous, and and no one would ever believe that. Or or, or maybe one, uh, another one of Satan's lies that he, that he hangs onto, that he deceives people with. Oh, it's not really a life until it's born. It's not really officially considered alive until it has a social security number and a birth certificate. Until then, it's just a mass of disorganized nothing, and it's really not a big deal if you choose to demolish it. Yeah? Hey, let's try that in real life. Okay? Let's go back to the 1910s, you know, when Henry Ford was working on the first gasoline engine. And it wasn't completed yet. He hadn't yet birthed it to the world scene. And here you come in the room and you say, you know what, I don't like it. And I don't want that in my world because that would be so inconvenient. And you just take a baseball bat and you just smash that thing to pieces and say, what? What did I do? It's really not a big deal because it wasn't finished yet. How would Henry Ford feel? Well, how does God feel? How does God feel when something that he's knitting together The cells that are being organized, the personality that's being wired, the uniqueness and the intricacy. How does God feel? Well, if everyone believed in God and someone tried to say, well, hey, that life isn't really a life, then we would look out and we'd say, where do you even come up with those ideas? But here's the strength of Satan's lie, is that he has been able to achieve that the majority of people believe what it is that he propagates and the lie that he gives, and that's the strength of his kingdom. And therefore, when there's a defector, when someone says, you know what, I see through those lies, I realize the vanity and the emptiness of what it is that has been told to me, and I'm choosing to give my life now to the truth, to King Jesus, who sets me free, who wants to give abundant life, and now I'm going to give myself to him, Satan looks on, and he fears. Just as Adonai Bezek fears. He also fears, not just because the strength of his kingdom is weakened through someone who left but also because of the potential influence that that defector might have on others that someone else might look into the life of someone who's given themselves to christ and they might begin to see the blessing of god they might begin to see life come into their eyes they might be able to see chains fall off of their back bondage broken addictions subsided Physical infirmities healed. They might begin to see those things happen and that they might also then say, hey, we need to do what the Gibeonites did. And we need to realize that we're on a sinking ship and we might turn away. And so here's what Satan does. Satan turns all of his arrows towards you. Towards the defector. Towards the person that's given their life to Christ. Because if he can discourage you, if he can defeat you, if he can intimidate you to the point where you would say, this problem, these problems that I'm facing, that are coming at me from every side are too big for me, then perhaps he can bring you into a place of compromise, or a place of quitting, or a place of defecting back onto his team because of the fear of what might happen, or because of what is happening, through the problems that you're experiencing, because you have turned your life over to Christ. Now this is exactly what Adonai Bezek does now to the Gibeonites. Watch this. Look with me at verse 3. It says, Therefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Pirim, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon, For it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, of Jarmish, of Lachish, of Eglon, gathered together and went up, they and all their armies, and they camped before Gibeon and made war against it they seek to intimidate now not Joshua and the children of Israel as they had in the last chapter, but now they're focusing all their energy on the new convert, on the people that have just made peace with Joshua in an attempt to snuff them out. And that is exactly what Satan does to the new believer in Jesus Christ. He gathers every power of hell that has any potential to harm that person and he throws it all at you at once. You give your life to Christ, and yesterday everything was fine. But today, the day after, you find that you're having problems with your friends. What, what was no problem yesterday, today all of a sudden there's tumults, there's storms, there's problems with finances. You find that there's problems with your health, with your marriage and your family, at your job. You find that there's temptations and trials that there's depression, that there's the spiritual oppression that's hit you that, that maybe you never felt felt before, or the lies. And it just seems that, that everything on every side all of a sudden that mounts up against you and you say, whoa, 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 what's going on here? I thought I was giving my life to Jesus and that I was going to have peace and that I was going to have stability and that I was going to have strength and that all my problems were going to go away. But it seems that I've given my life to him, and instead now it seems that my problems are compounded. And I find myself in a place of weakness where it seems that my problems are way too big for me to handle. What am I to do? So here's what happens at this point. You have two choices. You're under attack. The problems have mounted. What do I do? Option number one is that you can try to handle the problem yourself. Or the problems that you might have. Try to handle them yourself. And so you assess the situation and you look at the finances and you look at what's going on with your friends and you look at your relationship with your boyfriend or your spouse. You look at what's going on with with everything around you and, and one by one you begin to say, well, what can I do to fix this problem? And you realize, I can't fix this problem. And so Satan or Adonai Zedek or the kings of Canaan, they come to you and say, okay, well then let's make a deal. Because it's true that these problems can't help you, but maybe we can just enter into some kind of a compromise. Maybe we can just get into some kind of a contract. You give me your word that you're not going to go all in with Joshua and fight against me. And I'll give you my word that I won't squash you like a bug. And so now we're handling our problems by ourselves. And so we see this financial problem and we say, hey, the money's just not there. Column A and column B aren't matching up. There's no way for, for, for this to work out. How am I going to pay this? How am I going to work this out? And so Adonai an that comes in and he says, Hey, I, I, I got a solution for you. If you'll agree to 25% interest, you can just take out this Citibank gold card. And, and, and I'll give you a limit, $10,000, and that will get your problem under control for a while. It's still a problem, but you can kick the can down the road a little bit, and and if you just compromise, enter into this agreement with me, it'll solve your problem temporarily, and you won't have to worry about it. Or perhaps you say, hey, you know what? Here I am, I'm in this situation, I've given my allegiance to Joshua, to Jesus. But if I go all in, if I give my life completely to Jesus, then my boyfriend's going to leave me. Because he's already told me that he... He's not doing the Jesus thing. That there's not going to be a Bible next to the bed. But here's what I can do. He told me that if I'll still sleep with him, then that'll be okay if I go to church on Sundays. And so I'm going to sleep with him, but I'm going to go to church, and that's going to be okay as long as I don't become a fanatic and go all in and give my allegiance completely to Joshua, then I can get this problem under control. It's not going away that there's still a rift but if i just extend my time limit here a little bit by compromising then maybe i can kick the can down the road and maybe i can get him saved and you see what happened is that you the problem was bigger than you you weren't able in your ability to eliminate the problem so you compromised at the table of the enemy and you prolonged the problem you got it under control the threat of immediate destruction is no longer on you the pressure of that trial isn't right, immediate, right now. And so, I've got it under control. And you feel like, okay, alright, that's good. I, I, I was able to deal with this. I've got this problem over here, but I did this. i got this problem over here, and I deal with this. And, and here's what happens, is that you find yourself with a whole series of little problems that are all under control, but you're not experiencing any of God's power in your life that he wants to deliver you, or show himself to be bigger than, or able to conquer those problems. And you say, but I've got all the problems under control. But have you ever asked yourself, is this really the abundant life that Jesus talked about? Is this what he meant when he said abundant life? That all of my problems would just be smaller problems or minor problems? No, no, no. But there's a second option, you see. They have another option at this point. Just like you and I have another option when the problems mount against us. We assess the situation and we realize that yes, our problems are too big for us, but Are our problems too big for God? Is anything too big for God? See, option number two is to turn to Joshua, to turn to Jesus, the one who's bigger, the one who's stronger, the one to whom we've given our allegiance because we knew that he was able to save us from death. But is he really able to sustain us in life? Well, look what happens in verse 7. It says here, uh, or I'm sorry, in verse 6, it says, And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So they make a wise move here. They don't seek to handle it themselves. They don't enter back into covenant with the kings of the Canaanites. But rather, they turn to Joshua and they say, Hey, you made an agreement with us. You spared us from the certain doom of your destruction. Now come and help us in this attack that's come upon us. Help us, Joshua, that we not be crushed under the weight of this thing. Now, it's true for you and for me that our problems are too big for us. Oftentimes, it doesn't even matter what the problem is. The Bible says that without him, we can do nothing. We can do nothing without him. And the problems that we face in this life are too big for us. The best we can do is solve them temporarily or patch them, but we cannot eliminate them completely. We don't have the power to do that. And so, we ask the question, are they too big for God? Now, Satan would love you to believe that God is not interested in helping you in the situations that you find yourself in. Now, you came to Jesus because you believed that he was able to save you from hell. If you came to Christ, that's why you came, because you needed your sins forgiven. But do you believe that God wants to work in your life and help you in the time that you have need and to bring you into a place of total victory? I love the story of Job. If you ever think that you have problems, just read the book of Job. And you'll be humbled and put in your place, and you'll say, I've got it pretty good. And the Bible tells us that he was a righteous man, that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He prayed daily for his kids. God had prospered him. He hated evil, and he loved righteousness. But lo and behold, Satan gets a foothold in Job's life by God's permission and God's sovereign power. And Satan wreaks havoc with him. He tears him to shreds. He takes away all of his wealth. He destroys all of his property. He kills all of his family. And Job finds himself destitute, broke, sick, full of sores, and sitting clothed in sackcloth on a pile of broken pottery trying to comfort himself with the broken pieces of clay. He had problems. And for 37 chapters, he philosophizes and argues and debates with his friends about how big he is. About how righteous he is. About how undeserving he is to be facing the things that he's facing. And he complains, he cries, he reasons, he pleads, he prays. He goes on and on for 37 chapters talking about how big he is. And then finally God steps in and it's a great scene. And in chapter 38, after Job had exhausted all of his resources and he was none the better for anything that he did, God steps in and he says, Job, I want to ask you a couple questions. And God begins to now quiz Job about things that are way bigger than he is. Listen to just a few verses from Job chapter 38, things that God asks Job when he questions him. In verse 4, God says to Job, He says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. In verse 12, He says, Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Verse 17, he says, Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Life and death. Do you understand that, Job? In all your size, and all of your righteousness, your ability to help and fix yourself? Verse 18, he says, Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Verse 29, God asks Job, he says, From whose womb comes the ice and the frost of heaven? Who gives it birth? The waters harden like stone, and the surface of the deep is frozen. Verse 31, he says, Can you bind the cluster of Pleiades, the stars and the constellations, or loose the belt of Orion? Can you bring out Mazaroth in its season, or can you guide the great bear with its cubs? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you set their dominion over the earth? Verse 35, he says, can you send out lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. And and this goes on for three chapters. And you can read those chapters as, as Job just gets lower and lower and lower as he realizes that God is bigger and bigger and bigger and that he is smaller and smaller and smaller. But what that means is that God is bigger than the problems Job has. Did you know that God is bigger than the problems that you have? If you look up on the screen, you're going to see a picture that was in yesterday's news. They're brand newly published pictures of Saturn. I don't think that's the one. There it is. I can see the reflection in the, you know, anyway. You know, brand newly pictures, satellite pictures from outside the orbit of Saturn. And you can see our Earth. You see that tiny little speck with the arrow in it? That's planet Earth from Saturn, which is only 900 million miles away, which really isn't all that far when you consider the size of our solar system. That's Earth. The next picture is a picture of you from that same location. (laughs) You see that? (laughs) Now, we're just talking about planets here. You know, Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Earth, Venus, Mercury, Pluto. You know, these are just... This is all inside our solar system. This is all close to home. I mean, this is a stone's throw away. Solar system stuff. When we bring it into the realm of galaxies, there's over 200 million estimated galaxies in the universe. Not just... Now, now think about this. Sun, Milky Way galaxy. It's a big difference. And then you have 200 million galaxies in the universe, all spaced out, and the Bible says that the universe measures the span of God's hand. From the tip of his pinky to the tip of his thumb, that measures the whole universe. It's all contained in that. Now, if you were to look at that second picture again, you would also see what you look like from that perspective. (laughs) God is bigger than whatever problems you might have. You say, well, that's exactly my point and my problem in this whole thing is that I realize how big God is, and yes, I know that God has power over my problems, but if he's so big, and I am so teeny, teeny, teeny small, then why would a God that big take interest in my problems? Doesn't he have bigger and better things to do than worry about the things that are going on in my life? Now listen, I don't have an answer to that question. I don't know why God is interested in your problems. I just know that he is, because the Bible says that he is. And the Bible says that God sent his son to this solar system, to our planet, to hang on a cross and die, to be the proof that he is absolutely madly in love with you, and that he is concerned with bringing you into the victorious light. Now, why? I don't know. But Romans 8.32 says this. It says that he that spared not his own son, but freely delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That God is concerned with the problems of his people, and he's desiring to help. And here is what I would suggest to you. Could it be that the problems that you are facing tonight could be on purpose prescribed by God to be bigger than you are so that you might in turn turn to him and find out just how much bigger than your problems he is. See, if you seek to handle your problem yourself, you're going to find out how small you are. But if you turn it over to him, you're going to find out just how big he is and how willing he is to work on your behalf in your situation. There are three facts concerning God and the problems that we see here in the text and the problems that we see in our lives. Fact number one is this, is that God is bigger than our problems. And you could write that down if you're taking notes. God is bigger than our problems, but we must believe in him and turn our lives completely over to him and trust him to take care of those problems. Now the result when we do that, when we give our lives to him instead of handling it ourselves, is that we will experience courage instead of compromise. We'll see the things that are bigger than us, but rather than cowering under them and compromising at Satan's table, we'll stand up and courageously embrace those things in our life and say, God must have something glorious that he is longing to do if he's allowing these things to happen in my life. There will be courage instead of compromise. What these people find is that Joshua is willing to help. Look with me at verse 7. It says, so Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. Now Joshua didn't have to do this. There's nothing worded in the contract that he made with the Gibeonites that said that he had to do it. He could have made every excuse in the book not to. He could have said, this is our way out of this bad situation that we got ourselves into. We could get rid of these people. Hey, we're 25 miles away And they are immediately surrounded by their enemies. There's no way we'll even get there on time. Sorry, Gibeonites, you're on your own. But it tells us that Joshua, who is for us a representation of Jesus, that he wasn't willing to see even the least of these squashed in the midst of their tribulation. And no matter what the cost would be to Joshua and the armies, he was willing to go and come to their aid. Now, Joshua is going to join with Gibeon. And Joshua Jr., which is the Joshua that we're studying here in the text, Joshua Jr. is still smaller than the five kings of the Amorites that are coming against him. In other words, put Joshua's army, add to that the Gibeonites, put them against the five kings of the Amorites there, and the Amorites are still bigger. In other words, the problem now that Joshua has taken is bigger than he is. The problem is not bigger than God, but it is bigger than Joshua and the Gibeonites, which brings us now to fact number two. Fact number two is this, is that God is willing to give us the victory in our fights, but we must be willing to fight. Look at verse eight. It says that the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly having marched all night from Gilgal. God tells Joshua here, he gives him two things. He gives him, first of all, a command, and then he gives him a commission. He says, Joshua, I'm going to deliver them into your hand, but you must ascend, and without fear, you must go and you must take on, you must fight against this enemy. Interesting. Don't fear them. Now that requires faith. For you and I to stand up against the problems that we face requires faith. To believe that God is going to come through and that we don't need to compromise or try to handle it ourselves. There's also a commission he has to fight. Now, again, Gilgal is 25 miles away. We saw in chapter 9 that it took three days to get there at an ordinary traveling pace. but We see that Joshua is going to go through the night and he's going to get there in one day. Gilgal, where Israel is camped, is also 4,000 feet lower in elevation than Gibeon, where they have to march these 25 miles, meaning that they march all night 25 miles uphill in order to get to their destination and fight the battle that they have to fight. And that required effort. It required work. It required some tiring sweat, some fatiguing on their part that they might come Uh, Into that place. Listen for you and me. Even though God promises. That he's going to give us victory. In our situations. He requires. He asks of you and I. That we also fight. Are you saying. That God helps those. That help themselves. Because I've always heard that. God, that's not in the Bible, that that's not a verse that God helps. Are you saying, though, that God helps those, that that we actually have to help God help us? Is that what you're saying? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that God helps those that helps themselves. Here's what I'm saying is that God wants us to play a part. Now, if we had our way, I know if I had my way, I would do nothing and God would do everything. I would just sit down and, and I would eat and enjoy myself, and do nothing, and I would just watch God knock everything down, just like the walls of Jericho fell, and I wouldn't worry about anything at all. I would just let Him do it all. But God doesn't work that way. Have you ever met a child whose parents did everything for them? (laughs) They they never make their children do anything at all. There's no effort to be put forth, no discomfort, nothing. You just do whatever you want. What kind of a child does that turn out to be? They're 40 years old, they're still wearing Velcro sneakers. They go in the pool and they're wearing swimmies on their arms, you know. (laughs) They don't know how to ride a bike, you're still kind of holding the seat and running behind them as they go, you know, so that they don't fall over. Why? Because you, you have to put in some effort in this life, and God is interested in raising kids. He's a father. And so he calls us to stand up, to take the sword in our hand, to fight against these things, to partner with him that we might have the victory. It's been well said that without him we can't, but without us he won't. And there's truth in that is that we have a part to play in seeing these things take place and watching our enemies uh, fall Before us what length are we willing to go to ensure that we obtain victory in our lives fact number three and that is this is that when your life is in line with God's will there is no resource that he will withhold from you watch this in verse 10 it says so the Lord routed them I love that word you ever use a router. I'm a woodworker, so I've used routers before, and man, a router is a violent piece of power equipment. I mean, 15,000 RPMs, and when a router blade hits a piece of wood, I mean, just, you better be wearing eyeglasses, you know. And it's a great picture, you just see as though God takes a router, and he goes in, and you just see Canaanites flying everywhere. You know, it says that he routed them, you know. Before Israel, he killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makeda. Now watch this. It says, And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of beth Horon, that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. So they go into this battle, they begin to fight, the Lord routs them, he sends them running, fleeing before Israel, Israel chases them, and God says, you know what? Hey, these people are doing my will, they're in my path, they're doing what I've called them to do, I'm going to help them. And so he opens up the treasuries of hail, and he begins to throw rocks upon the Canaanites. Now there's significance in this act. Why hailstones? Why did God choose to do it this way? Under the Mosaic Law, the penalty for blasphemy was stoning. And that's what these people were guilty of. Jesus said that all manner of sin will be forgiven unto men, but there's one sin that will not be forgiven, and that is this, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to reject and refuse the Spirit's plea to call you to come to Christ unto the point of death. If you refuse and refuse and refuse, the Spirit's knocking upon your heart, saying you need to get saved, you need to come to Christ, you've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And once you've committed that sin unto death, you're condemned, you see? Now, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 16, when God is judging the world, He's going to do the same thing again. He's going to rain large hailstones upon the people. Revelation 16, 21 says that they are a talent in weight. A talent is about 100 pounds. Now, can you imagine a hailstone that weighs about 100 pounds? Remember those blocks of ice you used to buy to put in a cooler when you would go on a picnic? You'd go to the gas station and you'd open up the ice chest and there would be blocks of ice. Those blocks of ice that you would pick up with two hands and carry to the car, you know, and that would you know, be heavy. They weigh about 25 pounds. So can you imagine a 100-pound hailstone being thundered down? Now, the miraculous in this is not just the hail. Because you could say, okay, well, okay, there was hail. But it only fell upon the enemies of Israel and not upon the children of Israel. Now, can you imagine being in that battle? That would be awesome. You're running with your sword and all of a sudden, you're like, yeah! You know, I, I, I know if it were me, I would pretend I was doing it. I'd be like, you know, watch the, the, the craters, the explosions, you know. This is awesome. What God is doing here. Why? Why is he doing it? He's doing it because the people are in his will. They're doing what he's called them to do. God's very economical. See, he's called them to make a conquest of the land, which they're doing, but they're not doing it one king at a time. He's brought five kings to the battlefield all at once, and God is giving them the victory over these kings all in one battle. Now, Joshua who's pursuing them, who's obeying and doing what God called him to do, who's obtaining victory over his enemies, realizes he's running out of daylight. He knows that he needs more time. Interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, it's already been a long day. 25 miles uphill overnight. It's time for some rest. If I were Joshua, I'd be saying, I can't wait for this day to end. Joshua turns around and says, I need this day to be a little bit longer. And so look what he does. I love this verse 12. It says, Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like that, before it or after it, that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. And then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. Amazing. Joshua goes on record, and he tells the son to stand still. He knows that he's in God's will. He believes that all of the resources of heaven are at his disposal because of what he's doing and where he is. And so he's confident that God will do all that needs to be done in order for him to ensure that he has total victory. And so he speaks to the sun and he tells the sun to stand still. Now, for many skeptics, critics, opponents of the Bible, this is a favorite passage. Because they say, come on! I mean, you know, the Red Sea is one thing. The loaves and the fishes is another. Walking on water is something else. But did, did you hear what you just said? That God caused the sun to stand still. Now, first of all, that's just absurd. That God would interrupt the entire solar system and stop the sun in its track. I mean, just the sheer size of that is pure ridiculous, they'll say. Second of all, they'll say, it's not even scientifically accurate. Everybody knows that the sun doesn't move through the sky. The sun is standing still. The Bible got it wrong. God is wrong. There's an No, 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 no. Listen, listen. To Joshua and to everyone else that lives upon planet Earth, what's the appearance? The appearance is, though, the sun moves throughout the sky. Now, that doesn't mean that God isn't true or that the Bible isn't real because Joshua didn't know that. It means that God is willing to work on our behalf even when we don't fully understand how things work on his end of things. Do you understand? God is able to do it. He's able to move the sun through the sky uh, in that thing. Now, they say, okay, fine, we'll give you that. So maybe Joshua didn't know that the sun was in the center. If God stopped the rotation of the earth, let's just say, because that's what causes the rising and setting of the sun, the rotation of the earth. If God were to stop that suddenly, then you would have inertia. Things like to keep on doing what they're already doing. And you would have bodies and water everywhere. I mean, can you imagine all of a sudden stop and all of a sudden, boom, boom, you know, every one of us right now, we would just be in that wall through it, you know, the, the Pacific Ocean would just douse the entire United States of America and we'd all drown. We'd say, what in the world was that? Listen, do you think God might have been able to slow it down to a stop? I mean, we do that in our cars all the time, right? I mean, we can go from 60 to zero in about four seconds and we don't go through the windshield, Because the sun stopped in the sky doesn't mean that God said, Stop! (laughs) Furthermore, can I ask you this? Isn't it possible for the God who made the universe, if he wanted to stop the sun suddenly, I mean, the earth suddenly, couldn't he do that and also at the same time keep the water where it belongs and keep us in our place and our position? I believe that he could. Furthermore, when you look at the Chronicles of History, of other cultures and things, what you find is that there are records in other places of a day like this. The ancient Chinese writings, the Incas of Peru, the Aztecs of Mexico, Babylonian and Persian records, the temple records of Egypt, all of them recount a day or a night, depending on where they were, that lasted about two times the length of a normal day or night. They all have record of that in other places. Meaning that there is scientific, factual things that back it up. There's other things, too, that have been done. Tracking star and planet models that find a missing day and and, and all the rest. And then there's argument about all that. And we could talk about all of those other things. But let me ask you this, Christian. Is it enough for you to believe that the God who made the heavens and the earth is able to be Lord over the heavens and the earth and to stop the sun in the sky in order for Joshua to obtain the victory? Some other theories, not that they matter, about what might have happened that day. Some say that, well, God didn't really stop the earth from spinning, but he just caused there to be a refraction or reflection of moisture in the air, and that it was the appearance of a long day that gave Joshua the victory. Some have said that perhaps an asteroid hit the earth at that moment, and it slowed down the rotation of the earth in half you know, and kept uh, that happening, you know. And, and there's other things, um, the, the other, the, some people say that it's just poetic, that the, the God gave him the ability to produce two days' worth of slaughter in one day's worth of time. The problem with that is that it tells us that the sun stood still in the sky, and it says it twice, and it says that there was no day like that before it or since that God heeded the voice of a man. The bottom line is that if you can believe Genesis 1-1, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then it shouldn't be a problem for you to believe that God can do any of the things that the Bible says that he can do. Is there anything that's too hard for the Lord? And the Bible says that there's not. Twice in Jeremiah, God says, I am the God of all flesh, and there is nothing that is too hard for me. And he is able. And so the question that that leaves us with, That if God can stop the course of galaxies in their intricate place, then is he able to stop the course of a cancer that would grow in a body? Or the chaos that exists in a family where it seems like people are ripping themselves apart and there's constant angst and strife? Or the corruption of a heart? Or a marriage that's dissolving? If God's powerful enough to stop galaxies, is he not powerful enough to move in whatever situation we might find ourselves in and bring order back to it? The same God that spoke matter into being, who flooded the world in the days of Noah, who confounded the languages in the days of Nimrod, who parted the Red Sea for Moses and the Jordan for Joshua, the same Lord who walked on water and clean lepers, healed the sick and raised the dead and who also stopped the sun and the moon in their course the bible says that he also hung on a cross and he died to show you how much he loved you and how much he wants to give you life and so the question that remains after all of that is is the god that you serve is the god that you worship tonight big enough to take care of your needs And do you believe in Him enough to turn your life completely over to Him and to bring your life into alignment with His will? Because once any one of us makes a decision that we're going to fight and we're going to stand up and we're going to watch God give us victory in our lives, I believe that God will provide every resource that He has in heaven and on earth to ensure that we obtain the victory because that's the God that we serve, and that's the point of this passage. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, it says, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think, that that is his desire. Well, let's see how the story ends. Look with me uh, here at verse 16. It says, But these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in a cave at Makeda. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings had been found in the cave at Makeda. So Joshua said roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. And do not stay there yourselves but pursue your enemies and attack their rear guard. Do not allow them to enter their cities for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. And then it happened while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they had finished. That those who escaped entered fortified cities. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makeda in peace. No one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Now, I love this picture. Because just rewind in their history just a few months to the other side of the Jordan River. It was a totally different picture. They were weak. They were trembling. They were afraid. They were timid. They were nothing. And now, just a few months later, we see a completely different dynamic in their lives. They're empowered, they're motivated, they're being moved, God is helping them, they're they're, they're empowered by His Spirit, and, and, and no one dares even speak a word against them. Listen, that's the power of Christ and what He wants to do in the life of His people. And it says in verse 22, And then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so and brought out those five kings to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And so it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua, that Joshua called for, them, for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near, and they put their feet on their necks. And then Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid nor dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. What a great picture. The problems that had been looming over Gibeon and over Joshua at the beginning of the chapter are now subdued under their feet and about to be slain. That's what God does. And then Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid nor dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies. Verse 26. And afterward Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees And they were hanging on the trees until evening. And so it was at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded and they took them down from the trees, cast them into the cave where they had been hidden and large stones were laid against the cave's mouth which remain unto this day, this very day. And so we see the enemies of Israel and of Joshua subdued and put underneath his feet in this thing. I love this picture because the problem that they faced ended up like this. The problem ended up with the feet of Joshua over its neck and then slain and then hung and then buried in the earth and then removed and slaughtered. And it's a perfect picture of what God has done to the enemies of you and I is that he absorbed all of them upon himself as he hung on a tree and was put into a tomb but was raised again. He is the Lord of all things. And so the rest of the chapter you can read through the rest is a synopsis of the southern conquest. It's just a repetitious uh, you know, giving of, of how those kings were slain. Um, and, and, and Joshua subdues the southern area all the way from Kadesh Barnea all the way to Gaza to the Great Sea. And, and they, they, they take over this conquest of the land through this thing. But here's where we close. And the musicians can come at this time question is what problem are you facing tonight where do you find yourself struggling the greatest And do you believe that God is bigger and that God is willing to give you victory over all of your enemies and what he wants to do in you did you know that if you are willing to bring your life into alignment with him that he will give you every resource of heaven to help you in your conquest and no matter how complicated your problems are, you might say that my life and my problems are more complicated than the very universe itself. And I would say to you, exactly. that God is more powerful than those things, and he's able. And listen, until you are willing to give yourself completely to him, you're going to live a life of constant frustration. And here's why. Because our Joshua, Jesus, is committed to destroying the enemies in our life. And as long as we are at the table of compromise and we're giving in and falling short, then we're frustrating the purposes of God in our life. We're not seeing the kingdom of darkness defeated and we're not experiencing the power and the presence of our king and his ability to set us free and give us the things that he wants to give us. So may the Lord give us the victory and may you find yourself in that place where he can do for you what he's wanting to do for you. Father, we thank you tonight for this great word that reminds us again, Lord, of just how big you are and how willing you are to work on our behalf. Lord, we ask that you would reveal to us personally and individually those areas of our life that you're seeking to subdue, to bring victory, and bring us into perfect life. Father, we thank you for the promises that are given to us through this text, the pictures that it illustrates. And may we, Lord, find ourselves growing, going from glory to glory, and experiencing you in ever greater, ever stronger ways. We pray you'd burn these things into our heart and our mind. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.